back to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. We're back today discussing a hard-to-find film, Rhapsody in August from 1991. Yeah, and uh, he's uh, really back in the swing of things now with a very normal movie. All things considered, like, you can have quibbles with his content, but compared to Ron and Dreams <laughs> and Kagemusha, this is, like, shockingly normal. <laughs> I would hazard to say this is one of the most regular Japanese family drama-feeling movies that he's ever made. Not necessarily in its content, but in a lot of its execution, it feels very... Honestly, the movie reminds me of a lot of is one that came after, Still Walking by Hirokazu Koreeda. Probably my absolute favorite single movie not attached to any other movie or franchise or anything. It really is a movie mostly about just members of a family being together. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like a Kurosawa film. (laughs) Honestly, it's kind of, I mean, it's the first one where it's like really modern. It like takes place in 1990 and they're all wearing like American clothes. All the kids have MIT shirts and Brooklyn (laughs) sweaters. Yeah, yeah. Way different look. Yeah, especially because like Dreams, Ron and Kagemusha, none of them had that. For some reason, this is like the Kurosawa movie that's not super accessible. We couldn't find it to stream anywhere. I got a DVD of it. I was surprised that it was necessary, though, considering how relatively recent it is when compared to everything else. It's owned by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. Like, they release their movies, so I don't know why this one isn't super available. It's super weird that it's not streaming anywhere. Like, Dreams is streaming, and that's a crazy, esoteric, weird thing. And it's just, like, a normal movie made for MGM in the 90s. It... <laughs> it's with so a weird. big American star. Yeah, with a big American star. <laughs> that, oh, man, we'll get to that insane oh yeah this is the, if there's one thing anyone knows this movie for it's someone who shows up in it my only guess and this is not really a guess but a lot of it's about the atomic bomb and it's critical of america for dropping the bomb which is totally reasonable is that why it's not available for streaming because i can't think of any other reason it's definitely a good guess i don't know i have definitely seen and owned more anti-american movies than this so i don't know why this one specifically I don't want to say it's suppressed, it's just not available, and if you have a movie by Kurosawa, you usually try and make that available. Yeah, especially when that's, like, if it was, like, The Idiot, <laughs> I would get maybe why people didn't want people to see it, but this movie was good. Yeah, if this was total garbage and horribly made, then yeah, but it's not. It's a completely fine, competent movie. I was, like, worried it was going to be total garbage for some reason because it was so hard to find. But then I watched it and I was like, oh, this is just so normal. <laughs> It's just a regular fucking movie. It's shocking. <laughs> it's so normal that there's hardly even, like, behind-the-scenes stuff to talk about. The film is loosely based on the novel In the Stew by Kyoko Murata, but not that much. It's really Kurosawa changed a lot of it, and I believe that he wrote this entire screenplay while filming Dreams. <laughs> he could have filmed this entire movie while filming Dreams, <laughs> considering how crazy Dreams was and how simple this was. He already had everything set up by the time Dreams was done. He finished this movie three months early. He already had financing locked in. And I can't imagine this movie was that expensive to make. It was really just like, okay, I'm do- I did Dreams and I'm back in it. And uh, now I'm going to make this one. I, I can kind of see why he makes it. It does tackle themes that are important to him. It's so weird to come off of Dreams, the deeply personal run, this epic film, just to make this like normal family drama. To make uh, I Live in Fear 2? Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I live in fear, but made in 1990. And made better. Yeah, and made better. I agree. Uh, But anyway, yeah, let's get into it. Four children stay at their grandmother's house outside of Nagasaki during their summer vacation. They try to convince her to travel to Hawaii to meet Suzo Jiro, one of her estranged siblings found by her son, Tadeo. 
The grandchildren worry that their grandmother does not want to go to America because her husband was killed by the atomic bomb. While they explore the city and come to understand their grandmother, the rich American cousins offer Tadayo a job in Hawaii. The grandchildren's parents arrive in Nagasaki and learn that Grandma sent a telegram to the Americans explaining the death of her husband, and that she'll come to visit Hawaii after the anniversary of his death. Suzujiro's son, Clark, travels to meet her and mourns the death of his uncle with the family. Soon after, Suzujiro dies and Clark returns home. Grandma Sandy begins to slip as she relives the bombing of Nagasaki and runs into a storm followed by her family. I feel like quite a bit of the movie is pretty... I don't want to say, like, totally aimless, because it isn't, but it's mostly just hanging out with this family for an extended period of time, and I do think that it comes off feeling very realistic. I really, really love movies that do this. I do feel like I'm watching a real family. It does feel very realistic. Even, like, there are moments that are supposed to feel supernatural, but then even they're, like, explained. It's really mostly about these kids and their grandmother. Like, the parents are really secondary. Even the big star is tertiary. These kids, I feel like there's degrees to which they're important. Some of them kind of go through a little bit more of arcs than other, but for the most part, I feel like the movie follows them, but the main plot points occur with other people. They're more just like the viewpoint characters. And that makes sense. I mean, it's a movie kind of about the aging population of Japan and its interaction with these events from the past. Yeah, it's inherently a problem that doesn't involve them, but they're just kind of witnessing it. I got the feeling that they weren't supposed to have different levels of importance, but they did anyway. Really, it was just that one girl who didn't seem to matter as much. Eldest son, eldest daughter, middle daughter, and then the young boy. And that middle daughter just, like, really gets almost nothing. These are two pairs of siblings, but it's not even very clear who's who's sibling. Yeah, I didn't realize until, like, an hour and 50 minutes in that the eldest boy is the brother of the middle child, and that the eldest girl is the sister of the younger boy. That's made clear once, towards the end. They might as well all be siblings. Like, I didn't know they weren't for a while. I thought they were just all related. This is definitely another movie, kind of like The Bad Sleep Well, where it really throws a lot of family dynamics and people at you really fast early on. Yeah, I remember in the very beginning thinking, like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, you're like, I gotta construct this family tree in my head. They call the grandmother grandmother, which makes sense. But then they keep talking about my dad, oh, and your dad. And I'm like, wait, what? You're not all <laughs> related? <laughs> but they are. Your dad's not my dad? <laughs> Eventually, you figure out the grandmother has a son and a daughter. The daughter is a parent to two of them, and the son is a parent to the other two. So they're all cousins, and they're all under the same grandmother who they stay with. The grandmother, her name is Kane, but I really, no one ever calls her that. It's always just grandma, so I feel like it's easier to just refer to her as grandma. She comes from an enormous family. A family that's so big that it's unknown. <laughs> yeah. She literally does not know how many siblings she has. She's like, it's more than ten. One point she writes 11 names down, and she's like, it's more than that, I know it is. She can't think of the other ones. <laughs> I think she's a really great character. I think Kurosawa really gives her a lot of dimensions, and I think shows a lot of really cool, delicate, Corieta-like stuff about aging and the minor ways that it can affect you and the people around you, because they're like, oh, wow, she doesn't have appliances, really, and we had to convince her to get a refrigerator, which is insane. Yeah, and she refuses to buy a washing machine. We gotta start cooking for her because she doesn't really taste anything anymore because of her fake teeth, and we don't really understand why she does certain things. But the main crux of this movie is kind of hedged on that 45 years ago, her husband was killed in Nagasaki when the atomic bomb was dropped on August 9th. I don't know if the actual conflict is within her or if it's that the kids are projecting the conflict onto her. The kids do seem much more concerned about it than she does. At first, it's not even obvious the movie was going to be about that at all. 
the atomic bomb doesn't really come up until maybe 20 minutes in or whatever. It comes up briefly and then they keep coming back to it. And then you realize, oh, this movie is a lot about that. The reason the bomb has become so prescient in their lives is one, because the anniversary of his death is coming up, the 45th anniversary. But two, because they, <laughs> it's hard to explain. Yeah, uh, it's but, difficult. Yeah. The mother and the father of these kids are meeting with their wealthy uncle that they did not know about. And he is supposedly the older brother of the grandmother that she forgot about. Suzujiro, and he lives in Hawaii, and their family has a pineapple factory farm thing. He moved to Hawaii, became a businessman, married a white woman. He is now sick and dying. And he leaves behind his son, Richard Gere. <laughs> yeah, Richard Gere is in this movie, which is so wild. And I really wish that it didn't have the title card that said that he was in the movie. Yeah, same thing with uh, Martin Scorsese in Dreams. Okay, hang on. I, I gotta get it off my chest from the beginning. Richard Gere does not appear to be half Japanese in the slightest. In fact, if you look up on the Wikipedia, he is a direct descendant of two Mayflower families. Yeah, he is the whitest of the white. He is a pilgrim American family. It doesn't get anywhere than that. And in this movie, he is the half Japanese son of a Japanese pineapple farmer. If they're gonna cast a half Japanese character, why didn't they cast a half Japanese man? Because he wouldn't be as hot as Richard Gere. It's so funny when he shows up. You first just start seeing him in pictures. And apparently Kurosawa met him in Tokyo when he was on like a press tour. And he was like, hey, I want I want you for this movie. And he's like, okay, great. Now I have a star. So. I'm amazed he said yes. He's just like there for like 20 minutes. Just like kind of smiling and having a nice time. He's such a weird presence in this film. I'll go further. He doesn't need to be in the movie at all. No, I... <laughs> For a while, you feel like he's not going to show up because he doesn't show up until an hour and five minutes in. <laughs> but yeah, it's Richard Gere and he's speaking a bunch of Japanese. Yeah, but then sometimes he breaks and just speaks English because he doesn't know how to speak Japanese. Pretty sure he doesn't know how to speak Japanese at all and he's just like phonetically memorized his lines. I don't know that though. Yeah, and then people speak like perfect Japanese back to him and he's like, oh yeah. Your father's Japanese. Like theoretically, you'd grow up learning some Japanese probably. But his mother's white and he lives in Hawaii. I don't know. Like, I, I, It makes sense that he speaks a little Japanese. He is beautiful. He's lovely. He's an extremely charismatic man. And ever since Days of Heaven, I've, of course, been in love with him. But like, it's very odd that he's in this movie. He is great and he is also miscast. But I'm really glad he's in it. Richard Gere doesn't look quite as white as he is. Like, I don't know. But he doesn't look Japanese. <laughs> That's yeah, sure. no, I would never look at him and be like, oh, look, a Japanese man. Yeah, I've always thought he had like a weird face. It's... My thing about Richard Gere is that in Days of Heaven, he looks like a perfect human being. And then by the time he's like 50, he looks like really weird. So he has like a very unusual face. It's like kind of beautiful. It's like handsome Squidward where, yeah, yeah he is <laughs> obviously handsome, but like to the point where it, it like you kind of lose some of it in it. Loses humanity. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a god. And he rules. He's, he's lovely in this movie. And he's in this movie. He won't show up for a long time. Yeah, first of all, you see our photographs of him and the other actors, presumably in Hawaii, just like vibing. And it was it's very funny they had to go take those photographs of all of them, pretending to be a family. But yeah, so the central conflict of this movie is we want Grandma to go fly to Hawaii and meet him because he wants to see her before he dies. But we don't think that Grandma wants to go to America because the Americans killed her husband. But the thing is, she says, I don't really feel any way about them anymore. 
it has been 45 years, and obviously that is a wound that stays with you forever, but I feel like in this movie they treat it a little bit like the Americans murked her husband rather than that he was caught up in a historical event. One that I have studied a lot in college as an Asian studies major, and I've also been to Hiroshima and to the museums and seen copious amounts of scarring pictures. I am very critical of the Americans dropping the nuclear bombs on Japan and don't think it's justified. We could stagger our position that the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs are an unforgivable crime. It is weird the way the characters treat it in the movie, where the grandmother kind of accepts them as an act of war, but everyone else is like, oh, she's really sensitive about this, and she's like, I'm really not. There's a lot of really great stuff where they're kind of going around Nagasaki and looking at different things. They go to the school where their grandfather taught. Something I really like, it's, it's really like we're back to some old Ikiru imagery with the playground, but this time we're seeing a playground that's been warped by the heat of the bomb. And they're like, this is presumably where our grandfather was incinerated, so this is the closest we have to a grave for him. They also see statues from all different countries except America, their sorrow for the country, and they're like, well, why didn't America give us one? And it's like, because they dropped the bomb. I think my favorite detail in this movie is I do really like that they're having their views of America challenged while wearing American t-shirts the entire movie. Kurosawa did receive flack for this movie. I'm not surprised. People feel it is selective in its thoughts because it is ignoring the Japanese war crimes that are plentiful from World War II. The Japanese did many terrible, terrible things during World War II. But I don't necessarily think that it's the film's responsibility to cover every single thing. And what Kurosawa says is, I believe that wars are between governments, not people, which I 100% agree with. Absolutely. But it, I won't deny that it is a little... He says there's no anti-American sentiment, but it definitely comes off that way in certain parts. There was one line where they could have acknowledged both American and Japanese crimes, and they don't. They're talking about, like, yeah, but like, America really, like, did crimes in that war, but, like, war is war, and I blame the war, not anyone else, but, yeah. I'm not surprised you got flack for it, but also, American critics are insane, and they can shut up. It's not anti-American. It just isn't. They would have cast Richard Gere if they wanted to be negative to Americans. <laughs> It's weird to wrap your head around because I just feel like the central conflict is itself kind of muddled. Because I don't actually know then what the grandma wants or how she feels. Because really, she winds up being okay with going to Hawaii. She just wants to wait until after the anniversary. The reason she initially doesn't want to go is because she doesn't think this guy is her brother. She's like, I don't know who this guy is. I don't care. I have no reason to leave my house if it's just some guy. Like, I don't care that he's rich. That doesn't matter to me. Once it's revealed that he probably actually is her brother, then she is convinced to go. So the fact that the son is American, the fact that's in America, all that like doesn't matter to her at all. It's really just the conflict around it being her brother or not. It only matters to other characters, which means that it doesn't matter. It matters to everyone else a lot. It matters to the parents and the children so much. A lot of the movie is spending time with these family members. I think there's a lot of really cute, good moments. The oldest grandson, Tateo, is working on fixing grandma's organ, and he's, like, doing that throughout the summer. That's, like, something that kind of takes us through the movie. The very first thing I think you see. They're having these views challenged, and they're starting to empathize with their grandmother more and understand some of her emotional pain. We get a couple different ominous or cool stories from her. Yeah, a lot of the film is dedicated to the kids going around Japan and then them listening to the stories from the grandmother, which are all about her siblings that have passed away. 
The first story is about her brother who was going to be a shoemaker and he was apprenticing with a shoemaker and then he elopes with the shoemaker's wife. And they run to the woods and they set up a hut there. And they set up a hut next to these two cedar trees that have been struck by lightning and are totally burned out. When the kids ask, well, why would they do that? That's kind of creepy. The grandmother says they thought the trees looked like a double suicide, so they thought it would be the appropriate place to set up their hut in the woods. Shortly afterward, in the next scene, the eldest daughter and the eldest son go there together. In a beautifully shot scene that is a little weird, and I called this from the moment she said we should go there. I was like, oh, it's going to be weird. And they go there, and they, like, the kid puts his arms on her, and, like, it seems like he wants to kiss. And then they both kind of, like, freak out, and then they walk away. And it's fine. I have no idea why that happens. Getting some real uh, idiot vibes here, where I'm like, aren't y'all cousins? Why is this happening? They are indeed direct first cousins. I got (laughs) Star Wars Episode Five vibes, though. This is a little tough, because they can't claim that it wasn't written yet. In the very next scene, he says that marriage between family members is a sin. So I think he like kind of is trying to cover his bases. He's like, oh, that happened, but don't worry about it. <laughs> I was kind of chalking it up to maybe he was just trying to do something to scare her, but it didn't really look that way. I don't really know why it happens. It's very, very odd. He says, I got caught up in the, the moment or like the mood of the moment. What mood? And that's it. <laughs> what mood was it? I understand. <laughs> if it wasn't his fucking cousin. I would say I completely get it, even though it's very odd, as they look at the double suicide trees and talk about the lovers. I guess it's implied that that's probably what happened to that brother and the woman he eloped with. Yeah, I don't think it's explicitly stated, but it definitely sounds that way. They also make fun of him because they see pictures of, I think, Clark's daughter, and they're like, oh, were you getting attracted to her? He's like, no, she's our cousin. He's like, no, absolutely not. I would never be attracted to a family member. But anyway, that happens in the second story is about her brother. And this one's a bit more involved. It becomes a more important part of the story is about her brother, who was always a little off in the head. He was the youngest, the weakest brother. And after the bombing, he locks himself in a room for the rest of his life and just draws eyes. She mentions also he goes to a swimming hole and the kids go to the swimming hole and they see a snake there. And they're like, oh, this is the eye of the snake that was frightening him. And grandma's like, no, it's not the eye of the snake. And then they go and they see the way that the mountains are set up and it creates kind of like a half slit. And then they do a crazy superimposition with what it would have looked like seeing Nagasaki being bombed from there. And then the mushroom cloud forms the other half of the eye. And then all of a sudden, an eye is superimposed over that massive human eye in the sky. She says it's not the eye of the snake, it's the eye of the flash, which is what she calls the bombing event on Nagasaki. It's like the only time, basically, that something outside of the universe of the film is shown to us. And it's really unexpected and super cool. Yeah, rules. During all of these stories, the middle girl gets frightened. At one point, the grandmother talks about how her brother was taken back by a water imp and placed on the lawn because he had almost drowned in the pool. And later that night, the youngest kid, Shinjiro, (laughs) he puts on a leaf outfit and pretends to be the water imp and sneaks up in the window and scares the shit out of the kids. And they all freak out and then they chase him. It's so funny. And because it happened right after the bombing moment... I was like, they've established that now they can kind of go to weird places. I'm like, this could happen. Like, (laughs) usually I wouldn't be fooled by something like that. But it's so soon after that I'm like, I I don't know where this movie's going. This might happen now. I thought he was going to be the real water imp. He did stuff like that in dreams. It's not out of the realm of Kurosawa's filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. It feels like we're in the ninth dream and it's going on for an hour and a half. But then he comes up and the mask is really, it's just a leaf over his face, but he looks awesome as the water imp. It's a really good improvised costume. It's, it's shocking. It's, you know, unrealistically good. <laughs> then he realizes it's just the kid and then they all laugh and chase him. And that's very sweet. And that's more or less the last thing that happens before the parents come home. That's most of the movie, honestly. That's literally 50 minutes of the runtime. 
it's cute stuff like that that's full of poignant moments. And then both of the grandmother's children, so the parents of all of these kids, come to the house and then they find out that they sent a telegram over to Hawaii saying that she would go to Hawaii after the bombing anniversary and explains the whole thing now that she's pretty sure this guy is actually her brother. The parents get really upset. They freak out because they think, oh my god, because we've now brought up this thing, now he's going to feel bad about it, he's not going to let us get the job at the pineapple plant, which would make us a ton of money. And it's like, really? Do you think that they would take this personally? Yeah, they like assume that Clark, because he's American, is embarrassed about the bombers. I, I forget the words they use, but like, essentially he would blame them for the bomb or something. They imply that he'd be very upset by knowing that his uncle died at the Nagasaki bombing because it was done by Americans. They just, like, operate in that assumption for a while. Yeah, it's like they're putting the weight of a country bombing another country on one guy who wasn't even alive. Yeah. I don't know why he would take any of this personally. I don't know where this fear is coming from. And the grandmother says, like, what right do Americans have to complain about this? Like, it happened to us. They said they were doing it to stop war, but they haven't stopped war ever since. And she gets, like, very mad. She's like, this is bullshit. Yeah, fair. America deserves to be reminded of it. But it's not like he is American. He doesn't even work in the government. He's just a guy. He's just the guy who owns a pineapple farm in Hawaii. And then they get word. They're like, oh, my God, Clark is now coming to Nagasaki. He's definitely coming here to just be like, uh, we hate you guys now and uh, we're not going to give you the job. It's so weird. So they're all freaking out. The kids are like, I don't want to meet Clark. He sounds like such an asshole because he's coming here to reprimand us for having our grandfather die in the bomb. And then he shows up and he's the coolest dude in the movie. He shows up and he's Richard Gere and he's like, I'm so sorry for what happened. Like, he didn't say it was a crime, but he implies that's how he feels. He actually does seem to take this really personally, but he doesn't take it personally as in he's offended. He takes it personally as in, wow, I lost a family member to the atomic bomb. I want to go visit it. So he doesn't even go to the grandmother's house first. He goes to the playground where coincidentally all the grandchildren are also going at the same time. Yeah. So they all meet up and... The stuff that happens from now on, I kind of like it because Richard Gere is so charming, but I feel really weird about putting the brunt of mourning the Nagasaki bombing onto the white man who's, like, mourning the loss of his loved one. It is weird to place him as, like, an avatar. Well, he's supposed to be half Japanese, and it's him mourning his uncle. Yeah, but he's not. Like, that's the weird thing. He is that's in the movie. That's why it feels so strange. If he looked more Japanese, I'd buy it a little more. It feels strange that it's Richard Gere. <laughs> It's, it's like the whitest guy imaginable saying, I can't believe my family died in the bombing of Japan. It's certainly weird, but like a lot of it, he's just standing there for. He just says, like, I feel deep sadness that it happened. At one point, he does say, like, I really feel like I like I feel it. I feel like I was there or something. That's a bit much. They're like, oh, do you want to bring us to your hotel? And he's like, oh, I'm staying at Auntie's house. I will say the level of tenderness and familiarity he feels with these people he has never met is like uncalled for. Completely insane. He's standing with all these Japanese children, and they're all supposed to be, like, cousins. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, they would be his cousins. <laughs> these kids are cousins with Richard Gere, and I'm one to talk. I have three Chinese cousins, but, yeah. uh... <laughs> yeah, it's more so that Richard Gere is, like, a six-foot-one Adonis, and these kids are five. Yeah, but Richard, Richard Gere is so much older than them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, no, I guess they'd be cousin once removed, because he would be the cousin of the parents. They're related in that way, which is still weird, and it would be less weird if Richard Gere was half Japanese, which he isn't. But anyway, he goes to the grandma's house and this is like just another weird thing where I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, where he's like apologizing on behalf of America for bombing and killing her husband. 
And she's like, thank you so much. It's like a really tender moment. She's acting very well. And presumably neither of these actors actually know what either of them are saying to yeah. each other. Yeah, she probably doesn't speak English and he, I assume, does not speak Japanese, even though he's been speaking in the movie. Shinjiro watches it and he's like, I think I just saw something really nice. They have this moment of reconciliation and supposedly they are aunt and nephew. He's a very sensitive soul and she's a nice old lady and they get along, which is nice. And you know what the weirdest moment to me was in this whole thing? is The kids build him a bed, and they show him, like, the room and stuff. They show him pictures of his uncle. And I think they erased the blackboard that had the names of all of the grandmother's siblings <laughs> yeah. on it to write welcome in English. And I'm like, this woman is who's showing signs of slight dementia throughout this movie. She's a little bit forgetful at times. And they just erased the names of all the people that were written on the board so she wouldn't forget them. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's it was the, it was shocking when they go over to the board. It just says welcome in English with two exclamation points. Uh, and he doesn't, he doesn't even, he just looks at it. He's like, ah. And he's saying. <laughs> yeah, and they speak some English to him. And it's game recognizing game with actors not being able to properly speak the opposing actor's language. And suddenly it's just Richard Gere in a room with four Japanese children that seem to have no relation to as they have this weird scene where he's like extremely reverently remembering his uncle-in-law that he never met, not even his real uncle. I suppose the grandmother is the only other relative that he has left, which is why he's so sensitive to her. But like, theoretically, he had There's so many of yeah, them. Theoretically, there could be anywhere. other <laughs> uncles and aunts who he doesn't know who have all died. And he doesn't care about them at all. But anyway, so eventually August 9th hits and they go to a service with a bunch of other people to remember the dead. Yeah, they all notice that Richard Gere is there, and they treat him as though he's Richard Gere, the famous movie star, not some white guy. <laughs> There's a really weird but really cool and impressive moment where Clark and Shinjiro are watching a group of ants walk along, and they wind up climbing up this red rose. It goes on for a really long time. It's not given much explanation, but it's really cool. And in the book, Donald Ritchie said that this was one of the hardest sequences he ever had to shoot. And they had to go to a completely different forest with like a different elevation from sea level to get the ants to do what they want. And he's like, and the ants did their part and they acted responsibly. Yeah. The, <laughs> I thought it was like serendipity or something. They just found ants walking by. No, they really wanted these ants to climb up this rose. The only reason I can find for it is the song they keep singing is about a red rose in a field that suddenly springs up or something. It's very cool. I mean, it is like something beautiful being corrupted, and that's what's happened to Nagasaki. Because they do say, beneath Nagasaki is another Nagasaki that was totally destroyed. This happens, and then right after, Richard Gere is playing... <laughs> I keep calling him Richard Gere, but Clark... Clark. He's playing with his cousins at the waterfall, and then Tadao, one of the parents, runs in with a telegram, and they learn that Suzujiro, Clark's father, has died. And it's like, maybe even the same day, or if not, then the day after. And right after this, they probably would have gone to Hawaii to go see him. But uh, because of screenwriting, I guess, now's yeah, yeah. the time when he passed he away. He was very sick. If he was so sad about his uncle-in-law that he never met, he is obviously very torn up about his father, and he disappears immediately. You never see him again. It's done entirely off screen. I actually do like it. It's a really harsh cut. There's a lot of noise from the waterfall. Clark is reading the telegram and then is a quiet, harsh cut to them walking away from a taxi. And then they look up and they watch a plane fly away. And, and Shinjiro says, there Clark goes. And the other boy says, Clark left hours ago. Like he's on a different plane. <laughs> yeah, I was like, why'd you have to say that? We, I got it. Like, <laughs> you know, I get it. It was conceivable that that plane was the one Clark was on, but they just had to own Shinjiro for getting it wrong. This really affects the grandmother. 
it really does become like I live in fear. Like a lot of this movie has reminded me of it, but this really specifically does become it because there starts, there's a big storm. One of Kurosawa's strongest Rashomon level rainstorms there's lightning and she starts thinking it's the flash of a nuclear bomb and she starts covering the grandchildren with sheets that's the exact kind of freak out that Toshiro Mifune did when he was dressed up as a character even older than this woman probably was in real life the thing that sets this off is that suddenly she feels extreme sorrow over the fact that she never got to see her brother before he passed away she like apologizes to her brother while praying and that's when it starts to become clear that she's losing her mental faculties yeah she thinks that Tadao is the brother at some point in a hallucination they kind of just say this, and I guess we have to take it as truth, that she's kind of reliving August 9th. Yeah, she sets up her husband's old clothes as though he was coming home from work. The clouds that day look just like they did on the day of, which is told by a neighbor. That's when she runs out into the storm to go run to the city. Yeah, to go save him. The whole family chases after her. She's running with her umbrella, which she uses a lot. That's her character motif. All the sound starts to disappear as they scream for her and chase after her and keep falling over. It's like Monty Python level gag how many times it cuts back to them running after her even though they're five feet away. This ending, I, I, I don't exactly know how you end this movie, but this ending for me felt off. It was not it. <laughs> yeah. It felt like it was really tonally weird. The sound goes away and it's replaced with some very beautiful music of children singing. The Rose song from earlier, yeah. It's synced to when her umbrella finally like bends outward and breaks and I think, you know, they're going to meet up with her and everything after so much time spent chasing after her. And then the movie just fades out to black and goes to credits. And I was like, whoa, oh. Yeah, the music plays for the entire song, like looking at her just walking in the rain. And that's over. It's a really beautiful image and everything. That's the image that's on a lot of the posters or the DVD box, which is the only thing you'd ever see if you were ever going to find this movie. Yeah. But yeah, the, the way it ends, I was feeling really good in a lot of this movie. I was enjoying a lot of it, but the ending really did have a little bit of a sour feel for me. I didn't really like it. I liked that she was losing her mind or losing her sanity. And I liked that she was running to go to the city. And I was feeling really emotional in that scene. And then that song is just so weird and jarring. It really took me out of it, especially because there's no resolution. The song just plays and then the movie's over. So I really didn't like that. Yeah, there's a lot of different elements of the ending that don't mesh together. If, like, that ending was better, I thought it would have been really, really strong as an entire film, but that ending really just kind of makes it feel very strange. The song, I suppose, is supposed to be important. The lyrics are about the rose. They, the kids sing it once. At the moment of Clark and the grandmother's reconciliation, the kids are singing it with the organ, which has finally been fixed, and then it's being sung again by an actual choir at the end. But yeah, so that is the end of Kurosawa's penultimate film, when it comes to the cinematography of it, I do think that the movie looks very good. It looks amazing, yeah. It doesn't look a lot like his other movies. He is using a lot more, like, mise-en-scene, like, long takes with very elaborate compositions and movement of characters, rather than a lot of quick cuts. That's kind of a characteristic of Kurosawa's later works, as he does hold on things a lot more. Like, there's Suyuzala, there was so many shots that were just on a tripod, sitting there with people at a campfire. It's just the evolution of his cinematography in this. The movie has a very warm summer feel, which makes sense. Rhapsody in August. My favorite shot that I did pick was the uh, superimposed eye in the sky because yeah, it nuts. was so crazy. And it's just an image that instantly got seared into my brain. And it's now, if you say this movie, that's the image I'm going to think of. It's so different, but I think really effective as like a creepy image. I would never think of an eye as the image of a nuclear destruction. 
but I really liked it. It's like a god-like event, heaven opening up and looking right at you. It's weird, it's not really traditional, and I don't really know if it was necessary to do, but it sure was cool to look at, and that's what favorite shots are all about. I will say I thought the cinematography overall was very, very good, actually. I thought all the scenes in the house looked really nice. There were some in particular which were just very casually beautiful. Just the mall, like sitting down to dinner, a lot of those, there was like reflections of the light on the ground. It looked just very, the whole movie looked really, really good. And then my shot was just a shot that I thought looked nice. It was when they go to the woods and they do find the two cedar trees that were hit by lightning bolts. And the trees almost look like they're embracing, which is wild. I don't know how they found, I guess they just knew about this and then they incorporated into the story. They're looking at the trees and there's kind of like the sight path and it's the eldest daughter and the eldest son. And they're sitting together looking at it and then the two trees are in the distance. It's just very nice. It's very obviously setting up that they see themselves in this double suicide lover tree, which is why the kid gets caught up in the moment and tries to kiss his cousin, which is weird. That kind of ruins it afterward. But before that happens, it's just very pretty and very nice. I think the tree looks really cool. The way these two specific zero trees look, I really like that effect. I like anything he does in the woods. I really like the scenes from dreams in the woods. So it's just a very beautiful shot that I like to lie. And it stood out to me. I was like, oh, that's nice. I can feel what he wants me to feel here. Yeah, I definitely get like the death surrounded by life kind of thing, which is kind of what's going on in the house. You know, it's four young kids surrounding this one really old woman. I knew he was going to try and kiss his cousin. I really, I really didn't want him to do it. And they fucking, he tries to do it. I knew it from like two scenes before. I was like, oh, it's going to fucking happen. <laughs> and it does. They don't kiss, but they, you know, whatever. They don't kiss. We don't really know what happened. Uh, and if you decide to see the movie, maybe you can parse it out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. If I'm wrong, tell me. Because I'll feel better. Yeah, please. In the end, I liked it. It's not bad. It's not great. I think it definitely has quite a few problems. I do think it is a better version of I Live in Fear. I think it's a much better version of I Live in Fear. Also, Dreams had the Mount Fuji and Red Dream. It's like his final thoughts on this topic that has appeared periodically throughout his work. The acting is great. I think the movie looks beautiful. It sounds good. Richard Gere is fun, if odd. But there's a lot of strange things about this movie, and I feel like the central crux of it is inherently flawed and unclear. There's just a lot of strange things in it where you leave it and you kind of don't really know how you feel about it, especially the ending. And so ultimately, I think the movie's fine. I think he's got a lot of better ones, but he definitely has worse ones too. So I'm going to give it a 7. So I did really like this. It was surprising, but I thought it was beautiful. I loved the vibe of the summer. The house was really nice. She was supposed to be from a poor family, but they have this beautiful house. Oh, I love the house. Oh my god, it's so beautiful. Leading up to the end, I was sad about her losing her sanity, but as they were running after her, I was feeling really emotional. I was like, if they cinch this movie, I'm going to give it a 9. I really liked it so far. And the ending is just so off-tone, so unusual that I didn't like the way it ended. I don't mind the US-Japanese politics in it. Whatever. He can think whatever he wants. It is weird that it's Richard Gere, even though he's cool. So in the end, I will give it an 8. If he had found a way to really button that up and do it really nicely, it could have been a 9 or a 10 for me, but... I do feel so bad, like, putting so much on this one weird song at the end, and it has themes, and it could have wrapped them up. You need to see it to understand how weird this final section is. They chase after her for so long. It keeps going. At first, it's, like, shots of two of them, and then shots of individual ones, and then shots of individual ones again, as they're still chasing her. So it's such a buildup. And to have the payoff be these kids singing this song? I don't know. I'm sure it makes sense, and there's a reason for it, but it was not clear to me. And it really kind of put me off of the movie. But still, uh, I'm still going to give it an 8, a four-star movie. I, I still did like the movie a lot. Cool. And we got one left. 
one left. I can't believe it. So for our final movie, Kurosawa's final film, Matadayo, not yet. There's gonna be a lot of meta stuff with this, I feel like. I was very emotional watching this the first time, knowing it was Kurosawa's last film. Now, after watching all these movies for the better part of a year straight, I think this is one's gonna hit even more so so i'm really excited to rewatch it i like this one and uh, i think it's a good one to end on i'm excited to see it for the first time yeah so check in with us next week for matadayo